0: wonderful song, By Your Grace We Are Found. I want you to think about that because that's a little bit about what we're going to be discussing over the next few minutes. You might want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. We're just going to read a couple of verses. and Actually, it'd be verse 5b. Now, I know there's not a b in your Bible, but a lot of times when you go directly to a passage, uh, if there's different phrases or a couple of sentences in the verse, then it might say, 5A or 5B or 5C. But anyway, when we read it together, you'll understand what the, what the verse is. Uh, By your grace, we are found. There's an elder standing before Peter at the pearly gates. This is a legend. I'm not sure it's really true. I kind of don't think it is. But nonetheless, Peter's explaining to this elder he had passed away and he's up there standing before um, uh, the gates of heaven. And Peter's explaining, you know, it takes 100 points to get into heaven. That's how you get in. So he turns to the elder after explaining that and says, why should I let you into heaven? And the elder thinks for a minute. And he says, I've, well, I've been married to the same woman for 60 years. That should count for something. And Peter goes, that's very good. Three points. So the elder's thinking, well, I... I've been faithful to go to church every Sunday, and I tithe, and I, uh, I've taught Sunday school class, and I've served in the kitchen, and I've rocked babies in the nursery. I've done all those wonderful things. How about that, Peter? Very good. That's, that's two points. So the elders kind of, went, man, he goes, oh, yeah, I started a homeless ministry, and, and I did it with my own money, and I would go down to the homeless, and I would stay with them, and I would feed them, and I would take care of them. What about that, Peter? Two points. And so the elder's shaking his head and he's counting on his hands, three, three. And he says to Peter, that's only eight points. At this rate, I'll never make it save the mercy and grace of God. And Peter said, bingo, you got it. A hundred points, come on in. Because he understood a little bit about grace, maybe without even knowing it. By his grace, we are found. Well, that's a word we use around here frequently, isn't it? We talk about grace. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, the different aspects of it. And, and it's a word that's used frequently among Christians. They say, I can't live apart from the grace of God or, or I'm so thankful for, for God's grace. It's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And a lot of Christians pay lip service to grace. But I wonder how well they really understand it. Not that we understand everything about it because it's immeasurable. But I wonder how many Christians understand grace in a way that really grabs them so that they really benefit by the operation of grace in their lives, in a way that makes a difference in their lives moment by moment. So that's what we want to think about this morning. Really two two questions. What is grace? And how do we put ourselves in position to experience this grace of God. You know, if you're a football player, if you're a receiver, what a receiver does is he goes out for a pass and his whole goal is that he wants to put himself in a position to receive the football from the quarterback. He wants to have his defender on one side of him and he wants to be able to receive that ball from the guy that's throwing it to him. How do we put ourselves in a position not to earn but to receive the grace of God. And that's what Peter is talking about in this passage. So let's look at the word of God. Peter had been, uh, he's writing to a church uh, of persecuted Christians in uh, what is now modern day Turkey. And he's telling them to hang in there. And he's given them instructions on how to do that. And he has just finished uh, talking to the elders about what they should do. And then the younger men in their church, what they should do. And now he turns to everyone and he says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties or your cares upon him because he cares for you. That is the word of God. Peter is telling us how to experience a little bit about this grace. So what is it? I mean, what is, what is grace? Now to, to try to define what grace is, it's almost like looking through a kaleidoscope. You know, when you look through a kaleidoscope, you see, you see a wonderful picture and then you turn it a little bit and it's the same kaleidoscope, but you look into it and you see another wonderful picture and you turn it again, you see a, another wonderful picture. And there's so many wonderful pictures when we describe grace, but basically what grace is, is the favor of God. The word is charis or charis. It's used 150 times in the New Testament. It's the word from which we have the word charity. It's the favor That God gives freely, that's important, without expecting something in return. Or you could say God's grace fundamentally is his spontaneous, self-determined kindness. And it's grounded in the freedom of God. You see, God is free. He is free in all that he does. Nobody told him how to create. He just said, I'm going to create like I want it. You might not fully understand everything about it, but he is free to do exactly what he wants. He is free in creation. And he's also just as free in governing creation, of using different things to work out his purpose. And the Bible calls that, or the theologians call that the providence of God, his governing the creation and governing people in his sovereignty. And he's also equally free in dispensing his grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's undeserved. When I was younger, I had a couple of difficult years at Christmas time because I fell into this horrible habit. I became uh, a present counter. That's a bad way to be. And we would go over uh, around the tree and all the kids would unwrap their presents and I would unwrap my present. I would look to see what my brothers got and I would look to see what my sister got and I would compare them. And after 2 years I realized something that was devastating to me the present counter my sister always got one more present than I did and I'm going that's not fair that's not right I deserve as many gifts as she has do you see how ridiculous that is I deserve a gift how strange that sounds you it's a gift you never deserve a gift If I'm owed a gift, it's not a gift. It becomes a payment. And God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us his grace because of something we've done, as if there's something that we have done to deserve it, or because of who we are, we we deserve it. I deserve is not part of God's grace. Think about that phrase. Think about how devastating that phrase can actually be. Think about marriages and what can happen when one spouse says, I deserve or think about working relationships and how they can be damaged when someone says, I deserve. Or people don't turn to God because they say, I deserve. What can happen in churches when a faction of people say, we deserve? I'm not saying that we don't deserve some things. If, if you were... Uh, working in a job and your co doing the same job with the same experience and making more money than you, then maybe you have a right to go to your boss and say that you might deserve something here. But when it comes to the things of God saying, I deserve, does nothing to position ourselves to experience the favor of God. I once asked a friend if he was a, a Christian and Are you a Christian? He goes, yes. So I thought, well, you know, if he says he's a Christian and he's going to heaven, well, I'm as good as he is. So if he's going to heaven, then I deserve to go to heaven. Oh, no, you don't. We don't deserve to go to heaven. That's not how it works. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, when we think about this phrase grace there's a sense in which everyone in the world experiences the grace of God they experience it whether they realize it or not they might see it not see it as the grace of God but but the rising of the sun and the setting of it That's an example of experiencing the grace of God. The beauty on a starry night or perhaps the the pure white snow freshly upon the ground or something, the beauty of creation or the the wonderful benefits of life, of good food and of good, good friendships. Those are examples of God's favor that everyone experiences. They are common to all. In fact, theologians call that common grace. But there's another aspect of grace. When you turn the kaleidoscope just a little bit, another aspect, let let, let me say it like this. Let's just say there's a, let's just say there's going to be a a huge party. It's an open house. And anyone that wants to can come to this open house. It's a great party and it's at somebody's wonderful home. and, And so people come to that party and they might not know much about the owner of the home, but they still enjoy all the nice furniture and the decorations and the, and the, and the, uh, the food and the music and um, the the uh, banter and repartee that goes with a good party, and they're enjoying it, enjoying the benefits of that party, the benefits of the one who's hosting it. But let's say that you go to the party, not because it's open to anyone, but because you got a special invitation, and you go to the party because you're invited you're invited by the one who is putting on the party. And it just so happens that you know him and you have a relationship with him. And he not only welcomes you and puts his arm around you because he knows you, but he takes you around his house and he shows you the places that not everybody gets to see. He shows you his kitchen and he shows you his study and he shows you places that, 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 that the majority that a lot of people don't even get to go. Why is he like that to you? Why is he showing you his favor? It's because he's your father and because he has adopted you into his family. Not because you earned it, but because it delighted him to do so. And now you're walking at home in the favor of your father. And that's what theologians call saving grace. The Apostle Paul writes about it in Ephesians, and you're welcome to turn to that if you like. It's Ephesians chapter 2, and we're just going to read verses 4 through 7. But what a great explanation of this saving grace of our Heavenly Father. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. We are saved by the unmerited favor of God based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and we're saved for a purpose so that he can show us that immeasurable grace, that grace that no matter how many sermons you hear or how many books you read on it, you can't fully get your arms around it because it's immeasurable. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it is a gift that we receive and we walk in it and it colors every part of our lives and it changes us. So how do we experience it? How do we position ourselves to to, uh, begin to experience or walk in the immeasurable riches of the grace of God moment by moment? How do we walk in the favor of our Father? And why is it that many believers don't experience the benefits of the grace of God? It's interesting that Peter wrote this book, that God used Peter and inspired him, probably using the experiences and the things that Peter had learned as a catalyst for for writing down the inspired word of God. And you know Peter, you know a lot of stories about Peter. He's a unique individual, but he's a lot like us. You know, the story in John chapter 13, when you remember in the upper room that Jesus did something that didn't really seem to fit into the mold that Peter was making of Jesus. He got up from the table and he took off his outer garments and wrapped a towel around him and he began to wash the disciples feet. That's not something that a, a person of honor or a rabbi would do. In fact, that was reserved for a lowly slave, for a gent- it was reserved for Gentile slaves and wives. Can you believe it? Even Jewish slaves didn't have to stoop so low to clean the nasty feet of a traveler. And yet here's a rabbi, a leader, a teacher, one of honored position, Peter, I mean, Jesus. And he's washing their feet and he comes to Peter and Peter didn't like it. Don't wash my feet. See, Jesus, this is not fitting into my framework. It's not fitting into my understanding of who I think Jesus should be. Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. He didn't really get it. And I wonder if we do that sometimes. I wonder if sometimes things happen in our lives. Maybe God is up to something and we don't recognize quite what it is and it just doesn't fit into our framework of how we think God should be or how he think uh, he should act. My Jesus, he doesn't wash any feet. Or there's another picture. And we're all familiar with this one. It's in Matthew 26 and other places in the gospel where Jesus told his disciples that they would all fall away. And they all said, no, we won't. And Peter was the loudest one. They might fall away, but I will never fall away. And then Jesus said, you wait, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And he says, even if I must die with you, Jesus, I won't deny you. Well, Jesus was arrested and he was taken off and Peter's following in behind. And you know what happens? He's at a courtyard at a fire and a little slave girl says, you were with Jesus. And he says, no, I wasn't. And someone else makes that accusation. He says, I was not. And then a man makes that accusation. The third time, Peter says, I don't know this Jesus. And then the rooster crowed. And then it says in Luke, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So obviously Peter could see him and their eyes met. And then Peter right then remembered the boast that he had made to the Lord, the well-meaning boast he believed that he could really do what he said. But now, after this rooster crowed and it marked his third denial, he went out and it says he wept bitterly. Peter failed the one that he loved. The one that writes this book didn't have a perfect track record. He had failed the one that he loved and he was weeping bitterly. He had said, I I, I wasn't going to deny you and now his actions are completely the opposite of his words. What a hypocrite. Not me, Jesus. Others may deny you, not me. You'll see, Jesus, I can do it. I can do it. But he didn't do it, did he? In all of his words, all of his self-effort and his attempts to follow Jesus. And here he was at this moment, weeping and bitter, a self-condemning failure, exposed. I don't know, have you ever been there? You know, we say, Lord, I'm gonna do this for you. I'm gonna be a good mother. I'm gonna be a good husband. I'm gonna beat that sin, Lord. Lord. I'm going to make this situation work, Lord. I can do it. I'm going to measure up to be the kind of Christian that I think I should be. Lord, you just watch because I'm going to do it for you. And maybe we fail. Maybe we don't measure up to our own words. Maybe we do things we shouldn't do. Maybe we don't do things that we know we should do. And we can be exposed. Maybe we're worse than we thought we were. So what happened to Peter at this this crisis moment? And how does it apply to our passage today? Well, I think he learned a valuable lesson. I think he was at the end of himself. And I think what he learned was humility. He was a humbled man. He was at a place where he needed to experience the ever-present grace of God. And we see that God has taken this man that was weeping bitterly and he has used them to, to be a leader in establishing the church. And he has used him to write these two books that are now in the Bible. And he's written them to a scattered group of these persecuted believers in modern day Turkey. And he's written them to us in this room this morning to teach us from his experience what God would have him tell us about walking in the grace of God. And he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Humility. It's kind of like humiliation, but an even more accurate definition is is humility is thinking rightly of yourself in light of the big picture. There's a naturalist, a scientist, his name was William Beebe, and he used to tell the story of of how he and Teddy Roosevelt would, would have discussion. And then when their discussion was over, they would walk out upon the lawn and then they would look upward at the stars and, and Teddy Roosevelt would set his, his, his eyes. He would fix them upon a starry like light and he would recite, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. And it is as large as our Milky Way. And it is one of a hundred million galaxies. And it consists of a hundred billion suns, each larger than our sun. And then Roosevelt would grin and say, now, I think we're small enough. We can go inside and go to bed. That's humility. Sometimes our greatest importance lies inside our own heads. Winston Churchill was asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? Churchill replied, it is quite flattering. But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, then the crowd would be twice as big. That's humility. I think one of the best sentences on humility is given by John the Baptist when he said, he must increase while I must decrease. Clothe yourselves with humility. Why? Because humility is the opposite of proud. It is the opposite of pride. It is the opposite of self-sufficiency. It's the opposite of being completely satisfied within myself. And God opposes the self-sufficient. He uh, opposes the proud. Listen to God's description in Hosea on the effect of pride. He says, I have been the Lord your God writing to Israel since the land of Egypt. I cared for you in the wilderness Then as they had pasture, though, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. God is opposed to the proud. Because when we are self-sufficient, when we are self-satisfied, when we uh, trust that we are in control, we forget God. We say, I'm good on my own. We say, I got it. We say, I will determine, God, if I need you. I will let you know if I deserve something from you. Yet in reality, this pride does one of two things. It either gives us a false sense of security because we have this vain imagination that we have the power and ability to ultimately control all things or else deep down we know that we can't always be in control. And so we have this undergirding of anxiety that we feel in our lives. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. Who? All of you toward one another. In other words, we never have the right to put on clothes of pride. And when we do, we set ourselves in opposition against God. And that is a bad place to be. Let me take just a minute and point something out about this passage. Why he says, clothe yourself with humility. I think Peter would know of what he speaks. I think that Peter somehow understands what was going on in that upper room when Jesus took off his outer garments and put that towel around his waist and washed the disciples' feet in the lowly form of a servant. You see the word clothe refers to the clothing that a slave wore to keep his clothes clean while he was doing his service, while he was doing his menial task. Service. So one thing that we could say, if you want to position yourselves to experience the grace of God, it's usually done in the context of service. One of the ways that we experience the grace of God is when we give grace away. Clothe yourselves with humility. How do we do that? The passage continues and it says, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. What a wonderful passage. It says, humble yourselves. What that means is is, it's a military term. When soldiers would line up in the morning, they would get in an orderly fashion and they would submit themselves to the commanding officer. And what this passage is saying is humble yourselves, I mean, line up under the mighty hand of God, the mighty hand which crushes the proud, but offers care and purpose and protection and control to those who believe in him. John Piper made an interesting statement. He said, nothing could be better than to have an infinitely powerful and wise God treat us graciously. And he does that to the humble. The reason is not that humility is a performance of virtue that earns grace, but that humility is a confession of emptiness that receives grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how do we exactly go about humbling ourselves? How do we go about humbling ourselves like this passage is talking about? We do it by casting our cares upon him. Casting our cares. You know that word is only used one other time in the New Testament? It's used in Luke chapter 19. uh, When Jesus is at Palm Sunday, when he's about to walk into uh, or or ride the, the donkey, into Jerusalem. And the, uh, the disciples went and picked up the donkey and then they took their garments and they cast them upon the donkey. That word cast, they cast their garments. In other words, they said, here, Jesus, these garments are for you to use. And they didn't carry them anymore. And we all have garments, don't we? He says, cast your garments upon the Lord because he cares greatly for you. We all have these cares, whatever they might be. I mean, children have cares. What, uh, fear of the dark or, or uh, fear of abandonment or, 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 or junior high boy, you know, I wonder if girls will ever really like me, you know, or, or senior high, I wonder if I'm gonna be happy in my life or college age kids, they have concerns too. Like, like, am I gonna get a good job? Am I going to have friends where I live? Am I going to get payback for all this time and money invested in this college thing? Or young mothers, young fathers, or men? Will I ever grow up? And their wives, the same concern. Will my husband ever grow up? And other people, older, our health and our retirement, casting all our cares upon him, means saying, Lord, Lord, Do in and through me what I cannot do. Lord, help me do what you desire because I can't do it on my own. And I'm going to rest in the favor and promise that you really do care for me. That's grace. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The psalmist says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. You see, casting your care, casting your anxiety on God is not a separate thing you do after you humble yourself. It's what you do in order to humble yourself. It's having confidence that the mighty hand of God is not over you to crush you, but to care for you. So wind this up. How do we position ourselves to walk in the grace of God? Remember, I call this type of grace that we're talking about, saving grace. So we start walking in the grace of God and then we continue in the same way. Let me explain what I mean. Humble yourselves and cast your cares. The first thing we do is we humble ourselves. We admit our need. We get to the point in our lives where we realize through the help of the Holy Spirit that if I want a relationship with God, a personal relationship, I cannot do it myself. Because I'm writing checks that I cannot cash. I'm guilty of sin. And I have no merit on my own by which God would or even should accept me. That's called repentance. And after we humble ourselves in that way, we cast our cares upon the cross. You see, because casting our cares, that's trust. That's faith. I trust Jesus Christ's work for my salvation. And now... I will live my life, albeit imperfectly, knowing that when I fall short, I am sustained by the saving grace of God. And you know, walking in that grace is not always easy. It's not necessarily the pathway to experiential happiness all the times. And God will take us places sometimes that aren't enjoyable like he did Peter. He might take us through places of doubt and of, of worry and of weeping. Of saying, man, I really messed that up. Places of of suffering. But you know, God in his grace allowed Peter to be a leader. And he allowed Peter and used him to write these letters. And he got it. So from a place of encouragement by one who's been where we are, Peter concludes this letter in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verse 10. With encouragement, And here's what he says. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, uh, your matchless grace. And our lives are lived as your children, with grace from start to finish. Lord, we are so grateful to you for making it possible. And then if there, if there might be someone here who is, is calling themselves a Christian, but they can't seem to get on top of things, maybe it's because they are working so hard at it instead of first coming to that place where they trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ from which everything flows. May your Holy Spirit work in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray.